over to you, Amy, and thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much, Sarah. Really a pleasure to be here talking with all your listeners. Um, Evidence-based data and good quality data is something that I'm really passionate about. So it's great to be talking to you about surveys. Um, just make sure that that's working for you. There you go. So before I get into it, Sarah's just given a great uh, introduction to Centus. Um, so if you're not already aware of, of the work that we do, then, then she's given you a, a lovely introduction. This is our mission to change the lives of individuals and organizations for the better every day. And we work with a range of different industries from mining and construction through to councils, education, healthcare. We're helping them with everything safety related. So let's get into today's topic. So by the end of the hour, I will have given you an overview of the components of engagement, the difference between engagement, climate and culture, and touched on some recent research across these areas. You'll have a sense of when and why to assess engagement or culture and some tips for selecting quality assessments. So there are many high quality assessments that are out there to choose from, but equally there are some very poor quality assessments. And I hope that by the end of the session, you've got a sense of how to make that choice, how to identify the difference. And so you can make an informed choice of the survey that you would like to run in the future. I've got a few polls that will pop up as we go through. And that's a few opportunities for you to share your thoughts through the chat function as we talk and also post questions into the Q&A function as well. And I'll get to as many of those at the end as I can. So to begin, I've got a poll and I'd love to hear how confident you are in explaining the difference between culture, climate and engagement. So these are a bit tricky. Some people might call them buzzwords. They can be thrown around with little consideration for the actual meaning of them. Um, and climate and culture often get mixed together to refer to the same thing. So I wouldn't be surprised if there's a bit of confusion out there. So I'll give you a few minutes to click on your option there, not at all confident, somewhat confident, or very confident. All right, I've got the results in now, so I'll share that for you. Amy. Thank you. Fantastic. So we've got 24% not at all confident, 71% somewhat confident, and 5% very confident. That's awesome. So a, a really interesting spread and, and kind of what I would expect. These are the sorts of things that that a lot of people have probably heard of before. They might even be things you've assessed in your organization before. So I think it's a great opportunity to get in and talk about how they're formally defined and, and think a little bit about just measuring constructs like this in our organization generally. So a bit more about why this is worth talking about. There's been a huge amount of attention across these fields and a big push from executive teams and boards to gather this data. So as you can see there, a huge number of papers in the last five years in the academic space, countless surveys advertised online for engagement assessments, culture assessments, but we're also seeing some general confusion around why and when to use these assessments. And this is something that's come up recently in a discussion with a client who's been running some internal employee engagement surveys for the last couple of years, every six months. And they've been using this engagement data as a proxy for culture. So when they're seeking to run culture interventions, um, they're actually tracking their changes in their engagement survey. 
which might make sense, but they're actually measuring something different to what they're trying to achieve change in. So we had a really good discussion about that. And that's one of the guiding forces for creating this webinar and having that conversation about the difference between these constructs. So to begin with, I'd love to start with understanding the system that we work in. So we don't live in isolation as much as the last two years worth of COVID policies might have wanted us to. Um, but when we think about running assessments within a workplace, we need to think about the whole system and we need to decide which of these levels are we interested in gathering information on. So engagement and satisfaction, for instance, they exist at the individual level. They're specific to the individual. And I'll talk more to these as we go through later on. Um, and culture and climate are broader. These exist at the organizational level. So you can't accept, assess culture from the perspective of a single person, for instance. So it's worth noting that there are interactions across these levels. So this means that it's a dynamic process. You might see um, individuals influencing and creating that team co cohesion, the, the way the team works together, the team productivity. If we have a team member leave and a new team member join, we might see changes in the way the team functions. Equally, that organization is providing support, training resources to that team. If that changes from the organization's budgetary constraints or what have you, we'll see shifts at the team level, we'll see changes at the individual level. If we put a safety spin on this model, because that's what we love talking about, we might look at individuals holding personal attitudes about safety. Individuals have um, and will behave in ways that are safe or unsafe in the way that they're working. At the team level, we'll have factors like team support for safety, supervisor safety leadership. And at the organization level, we'll have policies and procedures related to safety. The metrics that we're tracking, like our lead and lag indicators, and external to the organization, there'll be safety legislation that the organization's influenced by. There might be guidance from industry groups. And so you can see how these factors work together to create a, a cohesive system. And we can see when these factors might break down or make workplaces not function the way we might like. So it's a common way of understanding and thinking about workplaces is this idea of having inputs. So this is things like leadership, climate, support, reward and recognition, performance management, uh, training or values. These are the things that we consider to be the factors that influence or drive our outcomes. So these are the things, um, the outcomes that we're trying to achieve could be factors like productivity, satisfaction, uh, turnover intentions being reduced, increases in engagement, or even improvements in behavior and attitudes like commitment. So what we'll see is that um, we might choose to focus on those outputs like productivity or satisfaction or engagement when we run a survey. Um, but if we consider what are the inputs that are influencing and driving those, we might be interested in focusing on those as well. In reality, it's not as simple as an input-output process. It's actually more of a cycle or an interaction between these two. And so it can feel a little bit like chicken and the egg, which is going to come first, our inputs or those factors we talked about as outcomes. So do our productive staff make it easier to be a good leader? Or does leadership make people more productive? Do satisfied and engaged team members help build a positive climate? Or does climate build engagement and satisfaction? 
So while we might like to think about these two as separate boxes and things that we can measure, they're actually closely inter intertwined and they're constantly influencing each other. So when it comes to surveying our staff, we've got to decide what we're most interested in knowing about. And outcomes can be, as I said, really appealing. They're interesting. We can track changes over time, but they don't tend to tell us what we need to change. So having that information may not always be enough. So sometimes it can be useful to have a bit of a combination. So that's my first tip for you today. Our next poll is up on the screen now. So I'd love to hear how your workplace, um, if your workplace conducts workforce surveys. Is this never, occasionally, every six months or annually? In the chat box, if you can let me know what type of surveys your organization has conducted. So just generally, it's a, a Leadership 360 or a satisfaction, staff satisfaction survey. If you can throw those comments into the chat, that would be really helpful for me to get a sense of um, what people have experienced in their workplaces. So we've got one, thank you so much, Susan, on engagement, that's great. Yep, the Working for Queensland PSC, great. Thank you so much, Rhonda. Sharon's talked about engagement, thank you. Yep, Annalise, we've got a leadership and climate survey. Thanks, Sarah. So looking at our results, we've got 22% um, of the people who are online today have never run a workforce survey, 13% have occasionally run one, another 13% at every six months, and about half of our group are running annual surveys. Yep, that's excellent. Fantastic. We've got another uh, Trudy with People at Work survey, and thanks Cassandra, School Opinion survey, and Grant Engagement Leadership. Awesome. That's great. Yep, so a lot of overlap with the things that we're going to talk about today. Um, and really interesting to see that spread across the group as well. Yep, I think the interesting thing about workplace surveys is how easy they can be, how quick and cheap they can be to roll out across a very large group of people. And they can be very useful for gaining that insight and also giving our staff a voice, a sense that they've been able to contribute, a sense they've been able to raise concerns or issues. Um, but as we're going to talk about later today, it's also about what you do with that survey result that's going to influence how people feel about participating in the next survey and about whether or not that survey is actually seen to be successful. Um, so as we've seen from that list, we've got quite a bit in that engagement and leadership space, but I'm going to start out today talking you through what is culture and what is climate, what's the difference between the two. So Originally, the very um, broad approach to organizational culture actually borrowed from a general national culture approach. And this was some of the early models from Hofstede that generally adopted a type of continuum where we might have seen um, factors that related to culture like power distance, people being collaborative or competitive, or achievement orientation being positioned on the sense of being low or high related to national culture, and then applying that same approach to organizational culture. There are also a variety of culture models that borrow this idea of something being low or high and turn it into a bit of a quadrant type model with some typologies. And so this can be really useful for understanding the differences between workplaces, for understanding why things might occur the way they do in your workplace, 
but they tend to miss the nuances of real life, the complexity of culture that actually exists. They simplify it perhaps a bit too much in my books. One of the more recent, oh sorry, one of the most well-known scholars in the culture space is Edgar Schein. And he's described a model of organizational culture that focuses on the way it's developed, the way it's maintained and the way it might influence behavior and it has three main components. The basic underlying assumptions that might exist in the organization, the what people are expected to do, the way people work around here, the espoused values, what they say um, is important to them so that you could relate to a, the centers mission that I shared with you at the start of the presentation. And then you have the artifacts, the, the things that you see around the organization that portray the way that culture is embedded, that really demonstrate whether or not that value is something that you see occurring in the workplace. Those artifacts could also be around the way the policies are written, the way the work is completed, and those sorts of more observable factors. So you've got those deeper underlying assumptions. When we look at this from um, the organizational level in a safety context, we can define safety culture as an organization shared beliefs and values about safety. So essentially the way things are done around here. The key word being shared, so it's across the organization, and a focus on that belief and value system. So the underlying assumptions that can sometimes be unspoken, which is why it's really important to measure culture with interviews, focus groups and observations, because by hearing the stories, by um, exploring the way work is done, by understanding the context of things, that's how we start to get into that deeper level of those underlying assumptions. So another feature of culture that can be really interesting is this idea of subcultures. And you might have experienced that yourself. Certain teams or certain sites have a very different feel or a different vibe, a different expectation on the way work is done to another site or location, even in the same business. While they may have the same overarching organizational culture, there can still be some subcultures that might exist. So my next um, top tip for looking at assessing culture is making sure that you've got the option of filtering or sorting through your data and looking at the differences that might exist between sites or locations using your demographics. Thought I would quickly share our center safety culture model so you can see how we explore a variety of factors such as practices, environment and people. And these are supported at the various levels of leadership from frontline right through to the executive board level leadership. And these factors can be assessed, as I mentioned, through interviews, focus groups and observations. And once we have the data, we organize it into themes. And this is really important because remember culture is something that's shared across people. So we're interested in seeing the factors that come up consistently across the data. So the benefit of this qualitative approach is that it reflects the norms and assumptions about safety that are going to be really unique to your organization and identify the way people are talking about safety and the way things are being done. So once we have the data organized into themes, we can map it onto a maturity model. This is the center safety culture maturity model. Um, there are a variety of different culture maturity models out there. This one's largely based on the Hudson's model, which most of you might be familiar with. It builds out descriptors for each of the factors in the culture model um, that were listed on that previous slide. And we have dis um, descriptions of what that would look like across these five levels. So it gives you the opportunity to understand the way culture is influencing your outcomes 
and identify areas for improvement and track your progress over time. So what might different safety cultures look like? At that far end of the model, we've got a more blame type avoidance irresponsible, people are complaining, they're problem focused. At that citizenship end, we've got a sense of people being more responsible, being more in control, being accountable, being solution focused. And this is where we can link this to the idea of that external locus of control and that internal locus of control that we talk a lot about. So what about climate? There's a lot of information there in terms of culture and I'm gonna come back at the end of climate and do a side-by-side -side comparison. It's often a lot of um, confusion between the two. So there's a strong emphasis in the academic literature that these are two separate constructs. However, they're still related. So often the literature discusses both together. From a historical perspective, the development of these two terms, culture comes from an anthropological tradition. So that idea of immersing yourself in another culture, in another tribe, in another country, to truly understand how it operates, to be part of that, to look at values, communication, hierarchy, structure, the way things are done. Um, whereas climate comes from a psychological tradition. So that's more of a scientific basis to being able to quantify and measure human behavior, attitudes, emotions in a way that can be replicated in a way that's reliable and valid over time. So there are a variety of different ways to approach climate that have been developed in the literature. And these include things like ethical climate. So how decisions might be made and how people are expected to behave at work in that sort of ethical space could be about psychosocial climate. So do you feel that your managers care about your well-being at work? Uh, it could be about, um, depending upon your industry, it could be a service climate, uh, quality climate or even an innovation climate. So there's heaps of different ways we can look at climate and break it down, but each of those have the same kind of fundamental principles of a clear definition and a clear set of questions that can be asked to assess that climate. So let's have a look at safety climate. So it's demonstrated through individual shared perceptions and observations of the organization's approach to safety <clears throat> and is a snapshot or surface display of a deeper safety culture. So climate's more about what you feel when you walk into an organization. It's what you can see and hear. And this means that we can measure it using a survey. It's a much more standardized approach and people can share their perspectives on these key safety dimensions through answering a set of survey questions. So the key words in this definition that I'd like to point out is that it's an individual's perspective of what they're observing within their organization. So what's really important here is it doesn't mean that it is only about what's going on for you as an individual, it's what you're seeing in your organization. So you may not have had um, or been part of an incident investigation, but you're aware of that occurring in your organization. You've got colleagues who've been through it, you know that there's a process for it. And so you can answer a set of questions around, what is the incident investigation process like in my workplace? And do I perceive it to be fair? Um, and so you've got that sense of what is it like to be here? And you ask a series of questions across a variety of different perspectives, of, uh, dimensions of safety to assess that safety climate overall. The reason the picture here is an iceberg is cause climate is sort of what you can see at the top. Whereas culture is often talked about something that's much deeper, it's under the surface, it's a little bit harder to get at. So we can have that individual perception of what you can see. This also means 
we can start to target the things that we see and we can start to make changes at that surface level and we can see those changes. They might be quite noticeable to people initially, but what's driving that and maintaining that is at that deeper cultural level. So if we want to make some shifts and some changes in our safety climate, we should also try and be aware of what's going on at the culture level as well. We want to try and embed those changes at that deeper um, set of basic assumptions and values and norms that people might hold about safety. As you can imagine, that's a a slower process than a surface level change, but it's something that's more likely to be maintained over time, even when people come and go out of your organization. So this is the slide I was mentioning before we get the opportunity to see culture and climate side by side. This is a summary that's from the literature that's really useful for comparing the similarities and differences between the two. So we can see here the safety culture side is much more of that organizational perspective, climate's more of that shared individual perspective, so we aggregate across individuals. We have a um, widely shared set of norms and values in that culture, whereas that change being a bit more superficial and transient at the climate level. We have that overriding sense of management, commitment to safety, whereas climate's a bit more around that personal commitment to safety. And as I said, these two are related to each other. And so climate is a leading indicator of what's going on at that deeper level with culture and vice versa. Culture helps us understand what might be going on at that climate level as well. Cool. So what are some outcomes of a mature safety culture? So that's where people care about safety. They're actively contributing to safety at that citizenship of the model. And that's where we see outcomes like improved individual factors like satisfaction, reductions in turnover, improvements in engagement. We see increased reporting, which is really important because that's where people are, are feeling safe and secure and that reporting is a useful, productive part of, of safety at their workplace. So we actually see an increase in reporting, a reduction often in those uh, lag indicators over time and an increase in that positive safety climate, remembering that culture is a, is a lead indicator for that climate. One of the really interesting things that I think makes a focus on safety culture really useful is that transfer effect, where we'll see a mature safety culture actually improving the organizational culture overall by focusing on things like values, communication, um, getting people involved and participating in decision-making around safety, we often see those features flow on and influence and improve across other areas of the organization as well. So to wrap up, I know I've covered a lot of information there. It's a great point to pause, reflect, um, and take a moment to consider what is the safety culture and the safety climate like in your organization at the moment? How do you think culture and climate are influencing um, choices that you and others might make at work? And how do you see this impacting your experiences and your team? So this is just an opportunity, I think, to, you don't have to write anything in the chat here, but just take a moment and, and think about what's going on in your organization and how has it been impacting yourself, people around you? The next topic that I'd like to talk about is engagement. 
So I want you to imagine what does it feel like to wake up and feel excited about going to work, feeling energized by your work. When you're there, you might achieve a deep sense of flow. You're deeply absorbed in your work. You don't even realize how much time is passing. So this is what we mean when we talk about engagement. The formal definition of engagement from Bakker and Shefeli, who are the two biggest um, researchers in this field, it's the most widely accepted definition, talks about three components. So that vigor, that high energy, dedication, being involved, experiencing that what you're doing is significant and meaningful, you're enthusiastic about it, you see it as a challenge, and that absorption, so that sense of being fully immersed in the moment, um, fully focused on what you're doing and being engrossed in your tasks. So as we discussed at the start, engagement is an individual level variable. So when we think about our systems and it's often measured as an outcome or an endpoint, something that we're working on achieving or improving over time. So there's a substantial amount of research on the broader workplace culture, leadership, team climate, all positively influencing engagement as that outcome factor. So my next top tip for you is to think about an engagement survey. And there are quite a few people in the chat who talked to engagement being something their, their organization has run on a semi-regular basis. And ask yourself if these factors are what the survey items are actually measuring. Unfortunately, we see a lot of engagement surveys that don't actually measure factors around vigor, dedication and absorption at all. And what they're more likely to measure are factors that might look like satisfaction. So two factors um, that I wanted to talk about are satisfaction and engagement. So satisfaction is an individual's general attitude towards their job. It's an emotional feeling, an emotional state where you appraise your job and your experiences at work, it's both positive and negative. And so you can explore global job satisfaction, which is how satisfied are you with your job as a whole, but you can also explore facet job satisfaction. So how satisfied are you with your job tasks, with your pay, with your supervisor, with the policies and procedures, with the leave allowances, all these sorts of things. Um, and so that's called facet job satisfaction. The second factor that's often um, talked about in conjunction with engagement is burnout. So initially, burnout was thought to be at the opposite end of the spectrum to engagement. So you're either engaged in the middle, or you're burnt out. And what we actually know is that's not actually how it works. They're two separate constructs. So burnout's characterized by a sense of exhaustion, cynicism, detachment, a lack of effectiveness or accomplishment in your role. So um, it is possible, as I was saying, to be both engaged and burnt out at the same time. So a really interesting study that was done by some Queensland academics actually, um, looked at a group of teachers and assessed their levels of engagement and burnout and found that, as you might expect, there was a group of teachers who were highly engaged and low on burnout and a group of teachers who were at the opposite end, so high on burnout and low on engagement. But there was a really interesting group of teachers who were high on both. So these are the teachers who still cared passionately about their job, they were enthusiastic about it, they were actively involved in their tasks, but they were exhausted at the same time. Um, and I think if you, for a lot of people, reflect about your experiences at work, there's probably times where we've all felt that. So it's a really interesting thing to look at um, as it's not just one or the other. 
Um, and what I'd like to do is talk a little bit about one of the main models or theories of engagement that helps you understand why this might be occurring. So this is the job demands resources model. And this looks at the idea of um, job resources that might be present in your environment to build engagement. So I'm gonna talk about what these resources might be a little bit more on the next slide, but it also explores the idea of burnout and the job demands that are placed on an individual that lead to burnout. So these could be task-based demands, such as work pressure, lack of role clarity, emotional demands, physical demands, they all fit in this category. So this model recognizes that while we might have high levels of job demands that could lead us to feeling burnt out, we actually also have those resources that help us manage those demands that can help us cope and deal with and get through them and therefore buffer us against burnout. At the same time, we have job resources that might help us feel engaged and involved in our work, but these can be hindered by the presence of these job demands. So even though we have some the resources we need to be able to do our job, the demands are just too overwhelming and so we're not feeling engaged. And so it's an interaction between the job demands and the resources that might be present. And this can be really useful for looking at how we might start to tailor engagement interventions. We don't want to just assess engagement, we want to assess some of these resources, some of these demands, some of the factors that are going on to help us work out how we can improve things for people. Lovely. It also helps us understand why one person may feel burnt out um, while another may not, um, but they're doing the same job. And that's probably because they have a different set of resources that they can draw on to help them cope with those demands. Um, one of the interesting um, resources that's received a bit of attention from the literature recently is the idea of psychosocial safety climate. So this is considered to be an upstream resource that gives you um, the um, support, the guidance that you need to be able to deal with the, the job demands that you might be facing. As I said, there's a whole range of different resources that can build engagement. So these include things like leadership, coworker support, supervisor support, getting regular feedback on the work that you're doing, having a sense of autonomy and control about when and how you do your work, that broader supportive culture and climate, and that sense of appreciation that the work that you've done has been perceived positively, that you're part of that cohesive team working together. And so there's a a huge number of meta-analyses and review articles that have looked at these resources. Um, and there's, again, going to be a variety of different resources depending upon the situation that you're in, the industry that you're in, that are perhaps going to be more or less important for people. It's also a really good point to stop and point out that there's some new research identifying that there could be a dark side of engagement. So this is where people are perhaps overly engaged, where we might call them a workaholic, where people are invested too much in their work. And so they're not switching off. They're not getting to recover from that work. So it raises a really interesting question about how much engagement should we be aiming for? All right. So we've covered a lot of information so far around culture, climate, the difference between the two and about what work engagement is. And I'd love to hear from you in this poll. Thank you, Sarah. Um, in your experience, how much change has been achieved following a workplace survey? So 
at the start, we had at least 50% that were doing workplace surveys annually and a bunch of people that were doing them semi-regularly every six months or occasionally. So when you've seen these workforce surveys completed, um, has there been no change, some small changes, a moderate change or heaps of change? Um, are they gathering dust on the shelf? Have they helped people to make a real impact? Let's see what we've got. Okay, I'll just share that now. Thank you. Okay, so 10% have saw, seen no impact, 71% some small changes, and 19% moderate changes. Really interesting. So often surveys are selected because there's been a, a problem identified and a survey is seen as a way to push along the change. But really achieving change is much more complicated than this. Um, if we've got those people who've selected moderate changes, so the four people there, I would love to hear um, how some of those changes were achieved if you'd like to type it into the box. Um, interesting, thank you, Sharon, that there hasn't been any impact, but people have been talking about it. So that's really cool. Um, one of my recommendations is to make sure you share the results of your survey widely with people and for that purpose, to encourage that um, involvement, engagement, talking about what's, what the results might mean because what we know about achieving change is that people actually go through a bit of a process. So this idea of people starting out, they're not even aware that they might need to change. They're starting to think about changing. Um, then there's that preparation for the change, the action of the change, and then the maintenance of that change over time. And so this stages of change model can be applied to anything you're trying to change in your personal life or in your organization. Um, so you can imagine that a set of survey results are unlikely to help somebody move all the way through this stages of change model, or even a, an organization, a whole big group of somebody's. So one way to support your survey results is, as I said, share them widely, but then get people in a room, get a plan together, and really seek to implement and action that plan. And this is a, a model that we often share with our, our clients. This is just an example. Um, we'd adapt it to suit each business, but it's a way of structuring the, the gathering of data, the strategy and workshop planning and the sharing of that information, getting the group together that are going to guide it, who are going to meet regularly, who are going to be responsible for, for rolling out this change, and then doing those regular evaluations, little mini check-ins, seeing how that change is being processed, achieved, um, and, and continuing to work through that and repeating that process to maintain that change over time. Lovely. So we've had a few people um, in the chat talk about surveys gathering dust. So it certainly seems to be a bit of a, a Band-Aid solution. Yes, Neil, thanks very much. Um, and, and often seen um, changes around the sorts of surveys that have been run, maybe because the results are not what people have been looking for. Yep, and thanks, Richard. The survey itself, while it might be initially rolled out as the, the driving force for the change, as you can see here, is something that is only one 
small part of that process and really gives you the data and the the getting people excited, hopefully, about what could be focused on and why it's important to focus on it. And that helps us lead into the next, the next step of achieving that change. So a few top tips on what to look for when selecting a survey. First, thinking about communication and implementation. You want to select a survey that you can support, that you can get really clear comms out to your people. They understand the how, the why, the when. And it's really important that people understand what will be done with their answers. Unfortunately, we see too often, um, I've had friends complete, so they go, I don't know why I'm being asked to do this. I don't know who's gonna see my answers. Is this gonna come back and bite me? And that's the sort of thing you wanna avoid because that's the sort of thing that will introduce bias and, and mean that you don't have the truth of what's going on. Um, Evidence-based scales, things that are based on solid models um, that are demonstrated to produce these outcomes we were talking about, um, have a sense of that reliability and validity of the scale. Is it being regularly assessed? Is it being regularly updated? Um, what's the evidence base behind the measure? And make sure you ask yourself, is this set of questions measuring what I expect it to measure? Um, so, for instance, as we were talking about that idea of culture being those shared, um, deeply held basic assumptions, norms, values, can I really get at that using a survey or do I need to be doing something different? Uh, the next point up there, allowing that contextualization of items for increasing the relevance to employees. So what I'm talking about here is not changing the meaning of the items, but tweaking a few of the words. So for instance, if your organization uses the word tailboard, um, but we have in the survey the word pre-start, or if you have a, a certain leadership level or set of supervisor titles, can you change those words so that the questions are meaningful to people so they understand them and you'll get better data. The next point there on privacy and protection of individual responses, is this idea of ensuring, as I said, um, that people, if they're not sure what's gonna be done with their data, they can be really hesitant to be honest about it. So by having that um, protection around individual data, about um, not sharing someone's demographic details and all their answers, we might be able to find the only male who's over 55 who works in this site or this department and look at their answers. Those are the sorts of things you wanna be seeking to protect. Um, you wanna think also about the results presentation. So do you have the opportunity, as I said, to be able to filter your results down by site or by demographic group, perhaps only to a, a number of, let's say five or 10 people so that you have that sense of anonymity maintained for people, but you can still look for trends and patterns and differences that might be occurring across your organization. Or do you just get it all in one big overall number across the organization, you don't have the opportunity to filter. And lastly, and really importantly, do you get some support with some actionable recommendations? Or is it just pumping the numbers back at you? Here's the raw data um, without any consideration or review about your workspace, um, your specific um, recommendations that would work to help address these. Um, so there's some of my top tips to keep in mind when selecting a new diagnostic. So I hope some of those have been interesting and useful. 
Today, we've talked about engagement, culture, and climate as different but related constructs, culture and climate being at that org level, um, whereas engagement being at that individual level. So the culture and climate get to the why of engagement. They help us understand why someone might be feeling engaged. Um, and so really taking the time to think about, are you measuring what you're expecting to be measuring? Uh, taking care when selecting a survey or running a survey yourself, making sure you're using evidence-based surveys, that they've got a solid um, basis behind them in terms of the reliability and validity, providing really good comms out to your people about the why, when and how the survey will be used, and have a plan for actioning those results and following things through. Uh, I spoke earlier about the centre safety culture model and the need to assess culture qualitatively using observations, focus groups and interviews. Um, and we have this in our site safety evaluation. We also have to complement that a safety climate survey that picks up on key climate dimensions at the org and team level and identifies those outcomes like safety behaviours and reporting as well. So we're really proud of the work that's gone into creating these tools. And we have a strong belief in the evidence-based practice. So if you'd like to know more about these or any other diagnostic tools, please um, give us your details and we'll be really happy to reach out and have a bit more of a chat about the culture diagnostics that we've got available, support in any way we can. Um, you can tick the, the yes button there and then your details will be sent through to us. Thanks, Sarah, for sharing that one. Um, and if you've got any questions, I've got 15 minutes left, so I would love for you to type any questions into the Q&A box and I will answer as many as I can. Um, thank you so much, Vanessa. Yes, I think the presentation will be available online. Um, yes, um, thank you, Amy. Yeah, we will include the slides as well on that um, event page that we send out later today. And I think I'm going to start including some of the chat points on the page too, because it's, it's lovely to have that engagement from attendees. Um, so we don't have any Q&A at the moment. Um, Vanessa said uh, it was a wonderful presentation um, as well. Um, so, actually, yeah, no. Sarah, while if people are typing a question in, um, Sharon's actually raised a really good point there about people uh, in isolated roles that could feel identifiable um, and then the survey won't be anonymous for them. And that's really important. And so while you want to be able to filter by demographic groups, you actually want that filtering to be an intelligent filter that if the number of respondents falls below, as I said, sort of five or 10 people, then you don't see those results. So that you could try and filter into that, that man who's over 55 who works out at that particular department, but it will say no data available. So that's where you want that, that kind of clever filtering. Um, Anne's asked a question there. Do you find that survey results are similar in similar industries? Oh, really good question. Um, no, would probably be my simple answer to that. And that's because that culture and climate that exists is going to be driven by that organisation. And yes, there's that external um, legislative industry bodies that might guide things. Um, but there's also the unique leadership practices, policies, the, the structure of the organisation, the people that they've hired, the way they've trained them, the investment that they've done over time, all of that 
um, really shapes the culture. And so if you've got leaders that care passionately about safety, who've been there for a long time, who talk really um, positively and, in, and encourage people to share ideas in the same industry, down the road, you could have a leader that's trying to squash that, who's um, who's not interested in hearing feedback, who's who's more focused on on production than on safety, and so you can see a, a big difference, even though you're in the same same industry. Yeah. Okay, so um, uh, Susan said, "Thanks for presenting the JDR model and link between engagement, burnout, per resources, and PSC." Yeah, no worries. It's, it's a great model for, for getting your, your head around those sort of key constructs. Okay. Um, all right, then we'll, we'll, we'll wrap this one up now. Um, I'll put um, details to how to contact um, centres uh, in the email that goes out later today. And um, thank you for um, presenting today, Amy. It looks like um, everyone agrees it was a fantastic presentation and very useful. Okay. <laughs> Really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Sarah. It's been wonderful chatting with everyone. Okay. Thanks, Thanks everyone. See you next week. Bye. Bye.